Welcome to Follow the Data. I'm your host, Catherine Oliver. Communities of color face disproportionate risks from the effects of climate change. The New York Times Magazine reports that African Americans are 75% more likely than other communities to live near facilities that produce hazardous waste. Data like this makes it clear that tackling climate change, improving public health, and fighting racial inequality all go together. This episode of Follow the Data is the first in a two-part series that features live discussions from the Power of Difference Summit, held in partnership with Bloomberg Philanthropy's Greenwood Initiative in October of 2022. It focused on equitable climate approaches that improve the well-being of overburdened and underinvested Black communities. Stephanie Dockery of the Bloomberg Philanthropy's arts team spoke with two artists who use their work to tackle these issues. Vidra Chandler, artist and project manager of the Bloomberg Philanthropy's Public Art Challenge projects in Camden, New Jersey, partnered with the mayor of Camden, Rutgers Camden University, and the nonprofit Camden Community Partnership to reclaim public space by transforming highly visible illegal dumping lots into venues for public art. She joined fellow panelist Erica Dickerson Dispenza, a New Orleans-based poet and award-winning playwright. Erica and Vidra are both addressing racial inequity in climate justice through the arts, actively working to eradicate systemic inequality, which is so aligned with Bloomberg Philanthropy's mission to ensure better, longer lives for the greatest number of people around the world. My name is Stephanie Dockery, and I am a member of Bloomberg Philanthropy's arts team. And I manage our public art challenge at the foundation with Anita Contini. And this project evolved out of the Bloomberg administration when Mike and Patty and Kate led 500 temporary public art projects throughout the five boroughs. And they really saw how those art projects spurred economic impact for New York City, created public-private partnerships, and really spurred and energized the creative economy. So since 2014, the Public Art Challenge has worked in 11 cities around the country and exported that knowledge to other cities, really forging partnerships between mayors and artists. And today I'm really excited to be joined by Vidra Chandler and Erica Dickerson Dispenza. Vidra was our project manager for one of our five winning Public Art Challenge cities in Camden, New Jersey. They reclaimed public space by taking illegal dumping spots, cleaning them out, and turning them into venues for public art. And Erica Dickerson Dispensa is a New Orleans-based poet and award-winning playwright. She primarily focuses on Black land and environmental racism. Please help me welcome them, and we will get started with our panel. Um, I think it's notable that both Vidra and Erica are not just highlighting environmental racism and inequity, but working to solve these issues and combating these issues in a myriad of ways, but particularly centering the arts in their approach, which is not something that is common. Um, So I really want to get into that. Vidra, I'll start with you. Sure. (laughs) So how did you get inspired to work in this? And how did you develop these projects? Well, we... Goodness. So the nonprofit that I was working for, Camden Community Partnership, is involved in a myriad of projects to kind of revitalize the Camden community. But 
very high on our docket uh, for many years have been issues surrounding environmental justice. And when I joined the partnership, though, I didn't, I didn't necessarily join. My, one of my mentors and I were like, we're accidental environmentalists. <laughs> but like, I came kind of with the arts lens and the arts background, and I was uh, working to program our public spaces with um, creative talent, um, local, foreign, anything, just, you know, inspire people through art on a wide variety of topics. And we kind of really welcomed, I'll say it this way, the language of the Bloomberg Philanthropies Public Art Challenge, like grant kind of application, like the, the challenge really spoke to us in like a very obvious way. Like we were like, oh, you want us to connect art to a civic issue? We were like, we, yes. Like it was just like a breathtaking brainstorm, like a, just a great way to say kind of a lot of what we were already trying to do was to help people be aware of what was going on in their community, but using our local arts and culture scene to do that and our parks and open spaces. So yeah, the idea really came from kind of a long standing challenge with illegal dumping in Camden. We've been spending four to five million dollars a year cleaning up illegal dumping around the city of Camden that are directly in people's back line, backyards, right in the line of sight of more than 60,000 train passengers a day, places that you can ride by in the Ben Franklin Bridge or just everywhere. Um, and it really, it really colors perceptions about the city of Camden and it kind of furthers this narrative that this post-industrial city um, of black and brown people is a dump. And a dumping ground and a place where, you know, everything else has been dumped and I can dump my trash too. And so not only are we, you know, kind of battling that, but as, you know, the kind of the topic of the day, this creates a massive environmental crisis. Like there's kind of trash everywhere and people start to kind of feel like, you know, you feel like you, you see something and it, it reinforces a narrative for residents as well. So they're like, oh, do we live in a dump? You know, do we live in a place that, am I trash? It's, it's totally cool. Like trash, yeah, whatever. What you do with trash is you like, you throw it, you know? So it's, it's a, it perpetuates the cycle and people were kind of, had lost touch of the fact that a lot of these sites were created by out-of-towners, people who were driving the dumping in from outside to avoid tipping fees at local dumps. But the average resident and especially the passerby and the person on the train, they have no idea. And so um, it was just... We, we knew because we had been working in this space. We had been working with different partners um, in the Camden community to address a, a variety of environmental challenges. But we, we really felt like this was one that was happening like on land, on lots, in backyards. That would be a great fit for kind of the connection with public art and art. And this is now a beautiful public park where we were able to install this feature that represents some of Camden's history and also um, you know, it was made from recycled plastic bottles as well as face masks that were discarded during COVID. So there was like so much uh, buy-in from organizations, mm -hmm. but also community members. You guys did an incredible job. From the show, <laughs> Playwright of Colored Water. Um, I, I want to ask you the same question. How did you get inspired to write this story and then embark on this tale of these women um, yeah. all undergoing the Flint water crisis. I will say as a writer, as a screenwriter and playwright, we often don't think about inspiration because inspiration don't pay the bills and it doesn't <laughs> put words on the page. So what I will say um, is that I was compelled to write this play unexpectedly. Um, I had been tracking the Flint water crisis beginning in 2016. I was late. The water crisis began April 23rd. 2014. 
Um, and I was living here in New York at the time. And I was in this little tiny apartment I was renting. And I would catch snatches of quotes from residents from Twitter and other social media platforms because they became the most reliable news sources for those of the global majority and working poor and working class folks. Um, once after year one, it had faded from our major news headlines, right? And so I was printing out these pictures and putting them on my bedroom wall and like catching these snatches of quotes and like writing them on post-it notes. And after about a year, right, early 2017, I have this wall of flint in my bedroom. And that was before I was a fancy playwright. That was before I was at the public. That was before I had even received my first official playwriting residency. I was a grassroots organizer in Chicago and I had clout as a poet in, in Chicago, but I was an arts administrator, senior arts administrator here in New York. So people didn't know me as a playwright um, or all the things that are like on my resume now. And so I was like, well, I don't know what to do with this information. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't have enough money to like send water there. That was before people really started doing mutual aid by way of Cash App and Venmo, right? Like this is 2016, early 2016. And I got five names in my head. Marion, Amy, Reese, Plum, Big Ma. Now, if you notice, only one of those characters has a real name um, in Black communities and in communities of global majority in general. We have multiple names uh, based on how close you are in relationship with us, right? We have our intimate circle family names. We have the nicknames from friends. We might have a community name, right? And then we have our government name that they call <laughs> what is on our birth certificate, et cetera, and so on. And so I didn't know who these people were or why they were in my mind and now on my wall. And my mentor, Avery R. Young, who is a poet, extraordinaire, a singer, um, he calls himself, describes himself as the, the poet or the blues man who prays and the preacher who cusses or something like that. And that's what his music is. He essentially, uh, in some of his live sets, in addition to doing like funk and our old school R&B, he remixes Negro spirituals. And so I always am privy to his work before it's out in the public or if he does something that I didn't get a chance to fly in for, he'll send it to me. And so on this day at the top of, or actually December, December 2016, January 2017, I get a text message from him and it's just a link to a video. And the link to the video took me to a clip of him freestyling in the middle of a concert in Chicago at this little hole in the wall bar. And he had changed the lyrics from lead in the water or from weight in the water to lead in the water. And his band members were just doing this rendition, this remix of this Negro spiritual, right? That was central to enslaved black people who were in fugitivity, who stole themselves for themselves, who liberated themselves, right? Or were en route to a kind of liberation. It is an important spiritual for us. It is instructions toward a freedom. And to remix that particular song in this way struck me so much. And it was at that moment, literally listening to the song that I knew the beginning and end of the play. And I was like, oh, I'm supposed to write a play. Because I think that performance art, particularly theater, um, which requires a live audience, you can't really like 
pause it like we can do our our streaming networks and things It'll, like i'm a fast forward past this part it's right. too gory <laughs> i can't handle that right now let me pause it and come back we can't really do that when we're creating a moment together and that is what theater is about creating a moment together while the lines are the same every night the show is different every night because we feed off of the energy of the audience right the the, the actors do and so I realized the power of creating a moment together and using this art form as an opportunity to, uh, as, as Dr. Sawika Diggs Colbert would say in her book, Radical Vision, which is an activist biography of Lauren Hansberry, um, stage an encounter because it is through encounter that we learn something new or can wrestle with something that we haven't before. And what I wanted to wrestle with was how three generations of black women and girls who are descendants of migrants of the Great Migration from Mississippi in this industrial city that is ruled by General Motors. How do you reckon with your own interpersonal relationships and the things that we sweep under the rug that we still mad about that happened 10 years ago or my relationship with my sister or this dynamic with my mom? How are all of those further ruptured in another state of crisis? So I had no intention or desire to exploit the water crisis or make money off of it, but it was like, huh, how do such crises rupture already ruptured communities, right? We're thinking about Flint, it, over 52% of, of Flint folks are living below the poverty level. This is a city that is predominantly black. This is a city that is a single industry city, as you said in your introduction, um, that literally General Motors is the only place you can get a job and they have been closing plants since the 1980s, right? Um, this is a city in the Midwest. We have the Great Lakes. It should be abundant in fresh, clean water. We're talking about a city that was on Lake Huron mm -hmm. and was taken off because the state was in debt and said, well, it's cheaper if we just put it on the Flint River water, even though General Motors had been polluting the Flint River since the early 1900s because it was not a drinking source. And because it's General Motors and they're in bed with the government and they rule, you know, the, the capital life of this city, who's going to who's going to say anything about that? And then you don't, you know, use measures to protect the water and the pipes. And so then the pipes are corrosive, right? And so for me, it was an opportunity to stage this encounter between uh, old guard, the elder, who understands the power of unions and having a good government job or a good, you know, stable union job and who has come through this General Motors company and has conflicted feelings about having to reckon with its past that maybe was hidden from her or that was like, you know, don't see, you don't look over there, we just mind our business. But like black people are your business, right? This, this community is your business. Her eldest daughter, Amy, who is a former addict and uh, a budding community organizer, she's the one who is very interested in, in revolution, even though she doesn't quite have the language for it yet. But there are people in her community who are organizing and while she's trying to recover her status in her household, she's also trying to recover what has been lost to this family and this community um, in terms of justice. And then you have her sister who just got promoted at General Motors, who is the breadwinner, who is 
is a widow and is taking care of this house and has two children, Reese and Plum. Plum, who just finished chemo because she had Legionnaires. You know, there's Legionnaires that the grandmother had. Plum gets this cancer that they kind of are thinking like this. This happened maybe because of, you know, the the water issues. And, and Reese, the elder daughter, who's like taking on more responsibility and just trying to heal through spirituality, right? And Marion, who has this promotion, kind of has this uh, like, no, no, things are getting better. I can take care of this house, the community that, that's going to have to wait. Like, I am now going to be making $80,000. Amy's going to have a baby. It is that status quo versus revolutionary potential. And the play is an opportunity to explode that. How do we begin to say, no, what happened in Flint is important. Yes, because of the people in Flint, and that should be enough, but also because they are me. Even if it's not coming out of my faucet right now today, it could, because if the government could abandon them amongst the most vulnerable, right? Pregnant women, elderly children, incarcerated folks, right? Because if you don't have water in your faucet at home, then surely, in the prisons and jails, they don't have it either. And they have to bargain with guards and power structures to even get you know, access to their commissary money or, or clean water. Then it can be us. And people thought I was exaggerating. And then Jackson, Mississippi happened. And before that, Newark happened, right? And there are so many regions that this is true for us. So it's also how do we make the processes of like how we get water real? Because how many of us really know how water systems work? Like, do you know the public works department of your city town and like where your water comes from, how it's filtered, if it's clean, what your lead levels are in your water? So it became an opportunity to stage those things so that we can invite people, invite people who may not otherwise be thinking about it or even know that they should be thinking about it or might need to be thinking about it for their own safety and the safety of our children to do so. Erica, I just love what you say about like the play being an opportunity to explore like what's going on in somebody's house amid all these issues, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, you know, it's like, again, just like the power of art. Like it's, um, it connects us to the the humanity and like the realness of kind of what is going on. I wish I had seen this play and this whole thing, but yeah, like. (laughs) Because there are other things going on in our lives, right? It's not 24 seven, this issue of dumping. Yeah, right. We get our water and we take it out of the faucet. And like the the thing that we have to deal with is like, what's in the fridge and what's for dinner? And like, is my brother like taking care of my parents? You know, like your your problems, but then you live in Flint and it turns out like, while you're dealing with all that stuff, you're also trying to figure out how to make Thanksgiving dinner with bottled water, which, by the way, ends up in one of my sculptures as plastic water bottles because plastic is everywhere, right? right. Like, can we please not? And it's the same it was the same with illegal dumping. Like, yeah. we could not believe how many people we would speak to and they would be, talk to us about how this infringes on their actual life. They're like, I'm trying to live. I'm trying to get from here to there. I'm trying to take my child to the playground. I'm trying to anything. And here I am wading through this pile of trash. Waiting. Thank you for that. There it is. Yeah. The water. Well, you, the time. Yeah. No, go ahead. <laughs> I just, I, like, I do, I, you have other questions and we should, we yeah, should we get try. to them. But I do just want to add that, right? The, the double whammy is such a complicated issue. I encourage you to continue to look them up as well as the dumping in Camden. But there's Nestle, the issue of Nestle. And Nestle entered a deal with the state of Michigan where they were able to ex- extract uh, water from the oh, yeah, lake I know about this. <laughs> without paying extra taxes from it. So they started extracting four times the water they did before. 
the residents in Flint are buying bottled water from grocery stores amongst Nestle bottles water. Na- <laughs> amongst the labels, right? <laughs> Available yeah. as Nestle. So residents are paying for this bottled water that a mega company who owns so many brands is getting for free. And then they got caught doing that by the residents. And so then Nestle was like, okay, we'll give, we'll give Flint residents, we'll give them free water for six months. And we'll like, they can come pick up free water at this place. That's, that was their redress as yeah. they continue to it's extract. Not free. Uh, it's, it's not free. It's not like, free. I just want to say, yeah, it's not free. It's not, it's not free. <laughs> and holding into this, I mean, you mentioned Jackson's water crisis. We worked with Jackson on a food equity issue. So there was a food, there's a food crisis yes. going on there too. So these basic human elements, these basic human needs that are in American cities and we're seeing like all of these significant civic issues yeah. just yeah. fall apart. But you you made an excellent point about the the audience and and what you wanted to put out there. And I was I was lucky to be at the world premiere of Colored Water. It was incredible. And it was one of the few plays where you made space for people to have an emotional connection, an audible emotional connection. You invited that. You're like, don't sit in this seat and be quiet. Please respond. Let me know how you're feeling. I mean, how many people have been to a, a show and you were encouraged to make noise? Um, and so we're, once you put the story out there, and this for you as well, when you put your projects into the world, you know, there's so much work that's done to build these projects. Were you surprised by anyone's reaction? Did you learn anything from the way the community reacted? And um, I know you worked with the community in building this and you had to do a lot of research. I'm just really, really interested in once it's out into the world, what was that feedback and what did you learn for you know, projects going forward? Who are you starting with? Mm-hmm. You started with me. Just want to be sure. Um, so I, I, I love the. I'm Southern and uh, very Midwestern. We call the Midwest up south because that was literally the route of the migration. Um, and so there are some Southern adages that really, for me, speak to the way I approach organizing, like sweep around your own front door or take care of home first. And so when I say those things, I, I think about the process. How do we change the lives and, and ways of thinking and moving with the cast, the director, and the people who work at the public? So it turns out that the director of institutional partnerships lives in a neighborhood directly adjacent to Newark and was getting these pink slips saying, boil your water. By the way, boiling leaded water increases the concentration of lead. But her local government was giving them these boil advisories and they had let it water. And she was like, oh, I, she was she was meeting with me for a um, for a grant, actually. And she was like, yeah, I haven't seen your show already yet, but it sounds really great. Oh, by the way, I was getting these slips. And like when I tell you, we sat for two and a half hours so that I could talk to her about what that slip meant. Talk to her about lead, water, all these things. And then she kind of. I stopped crying and we had a moment to, to, to allow that. And then she has become over time, that was what, 2018? She is now like a part of her community, uh, like her, her neighborhood council advisory. She's out here asking her politicians <laughs> questions. Right now she's thinking about running for governor <laughs> and like is That's meeting amazing. with women. She's a, she's a beautiful Cuban American woman and she's been meeting with 
you know, other women in her community who have been going door to door and talking to residents about their water. She bought her grandma, auntie, all of them like filters for their, you know, homes, not just the sink, but the bathtub. So it has started really in process. Um, with the people that I'm working on this play with. After that, um, we've we've had a great relationship with folks in Flint. Um, and before the pandemic, which the show got uh, postponed and then ended up a year later, we were partnering with folks in Flint to do some work with uh, the students at the University of Michigan at Flint mm-hmm. and to accompany uh, Mari Kopany, Little Miss Flint, on her like back-to-school activities uh, for, for the kids of Flint. But in the meantime, we've been able to um, highlight Flint-based grassroots organizations because everybody who comes to the to the public is like, what can I do right now? And some folks are like, I got $5, I got $500, I got $5,000. And so we make sure that those community-based mm-hmm. black and brown-led organizations get the financial funds um, from people finding out about this issue, but also that, hey... It's not just Flint, it's Newark, and they're down the street. Hey, it's the the school in Williamsburg that has twice the amount of lead in their school than the children in Flint. Hey, it's the projects up in Harlem. And so pointing people to and inviting the stakeholders of those communities and the folks who are already doing the work, because this is not new. There have been people on the front lines doing this already. Inviting them into the conversation, highlighting their work, and finding ways to partner with them from uh, financial resources to whatever else they're saying they need, which includes like community partnerships and how do we do this for children and that kind of stuff. Fair enough, quickly. Yeah, so I'd say our audience for our public art challenge responded kind of in three segments. So the residents who we engaged regularly and frequently and and love working with, the um, visitors to Camden, and then I guess politicians and state officials. Like we, residents were First of all, horrified whenever we would tell them that the city was spending $4 million on illegal dumping because they would be like, but wait, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like there's trash right here. So that was a definitely an interesting feedback loop for us, for people to be excited to see art, but to kind of be like mad yeah. about the facts, right? Yeah. So that was, that was something that was great because that also sparked a lot of conversation and advocacy groups and people to do other art projects yeah. that were environmentally sustainable, which was really cool. Then I say visitors, very similar. Like we did get a lot of interesting feedback on this kind of mission to change perceptions. Like a lot of people really did come to Kim for the first time or like, you know, oh, I heard about this cool sculpture. So I'm riding my bike around checking them out. I would just, you know, I'd be visiting the sites to check up on them. And I'd be like, hello, white person. Like, what are you doing here? Like, just kind of like that, you know? So that was really cool. And then, um, and I I have great stories and anecdotes and find me later about (laughs) people who were, chatting this up. And then, uh, yeah, the political community really responded. It was very, it was one of those things where, you know, we were able to kind of neatly and in a way like package like an issue that was definitely on people's mind, was definitely Mm -hmm. a big deal, but it was hard for anybody to talk about it well, right? Or eloquently or in a sensitive way. And we were like, don't be sensitive, like be mad. And so the politicians started getting mad and they started changing laws. And now we have steeper illegal dumping fines all over the state of New Jersey, but also in South Jersey. And we have large scale dumping sites that are coming under attack from the, our Department of Environmental Protection and things like yes. that. Like things that were just kind of, you know, they were like lingering. They were on somebody's to-do list. And like now they're in the news and they're happening and they're cleaning stuff up. And same, like residents and council women and banding together and the 
the, the big thing now is that by the end of the next summer, there's like 70,000 tons of dirt, contaminated dirt with lead and mercury that were dumped directly in the middle of somebody's neighborhood over time. It took a long time to amass that much dirt, but it's been there. It's been a source of complaint, especially on hot, windy days when it's coming in your yeah. window and causing you asthma and aggravating you and all that stuff. And it contaminates the ground. And it contaminates the groundwater. It contaminates every single thing. And finally, we're looking at that actually being cleaned up and the and the people who own the land being fined. But I mean, it didn't. Amazing. Yeah, it took years for this to be. So the audience response has been many fold in many ways, and uh, we're ve- we're very very grateful that this and, project. Uh, and also, you you also got uh, an infrastructure grants because of this project. We did. We got an oh god, we got Say a lot number. of really good. Oh, was it? I think it was like fifty <laughs> million, five million dollars in infrastructure grants from the city, state, and yeah. federal government. So people listen, um, right? People listen, yeah. And you affected change. What would you tell this audience as we're getting off the stage? What would you tell them to do as a result? Like, what did you learn? What would, what can they do today, tomorrow? Oh, so. <laughs> yeah, I should I? I don't. I don't do you, I have to go first on this one. Learn where your water is coming from. Learn your lead levels in your water. No lead level is safe, but the United States government deems a certain level safe. Um, you should just learn that. That is the basis. I could say you could gently, casually ask a contractor what they plan to do with what they haul off your land. Mm-hmm. Not that you're going to follow them to the dump and make sure that they do it, but I have found in my own personal dealings, in my own home improvement projects, that when I ask, people are like, yep. you know Stop what I mean? They, the yeah, they respond. And I, and I sometimes can get a little hint for whether or not this person was going to just drop, drop this off around the corner or if they were actually going to pay for it to be uh, dumped mm. properly. Yes. So that's kind of what I'm Thank you. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Follow the Data. Tackling climate change, public health, and racial inequality are inextricably linked. Fighting climate change will help improve public health for residents and artists can be a vital part of community-led action on these urgent issues. In the second episode of this two-part series, Garnisha Ezidiaro, who leads our Greenwood Initiative, will interview Jacqueline Patterson, founder of the Chisholm Legacy Project, and former New York City Parks and Recreation Commissioner Mitchell J. Silver on advancing racial equity in climate justice. Many thanks to Stephanie Dockery, Vidra Chandler, and Erica Dickerson Dispenza for joining us for the 2022 Power of Difference Summit. As always, the views of our guests are entirely their own, and Bloomberg Philanthropies hasn't independently verified any of the statements made by this episode's guests. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to follow the data. This episode was created by Amy June, Devin Alessio, Erica Gudmundsen, Amanda Mack, Rebecca Carrero, Nelia Stevens, Brittany Santagata, and Elliot Popko. To learn more about Bloomberg Philanthropy's arts program and the Greenwood Initiative, please visit Bloomberg.org. As our founder, Mike Bloomberg, says, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So until next time, keep following the data. I'm Catherine Oliver. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.